0: If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. This evening we'll consider verses one through six. Now, uh, perhaps if you were here last week, you know that I was not due to uh, uh, poison ivy disfiguring my face. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was blown up in the eyes and uh, almost, almost couldn't see uh, just before Sunday. Uh, I was uh, struck then by the wisdom of our elders when seeing pictures of me a week ago Friday suggested immediately uh, that a guest preacher be found lest I scare the little children with my disfiguration. Best not to have Frankenstein in the pulpit. I can show you pictures later if you wish to see, but I'm glad to be back. And uh, in my absence, Chris Miller came over, dear friend of our congregation, fellow minister. He preached verses 1 through 3 of our passage, and tonight I'll be taking the whole and pressing the passage forward and our understanding of it through verses 1 through 6. Now, before we read this passage, uh, let me just remind you that the first hearers needed this passage, as do we. Because there are many things that can make us tired of walking by faith without sight of the God who made us and redeems us. And it's easy to lose heart along the journey of faith as we encounter many difficulties. Mark chapter 13 verse 13, Jesus says, You will be hated by all on, my account, of, or on account of my name, but he who endures to the end... Will be saved. Endurance to the end is needed. The Christian life is a long haul, Uh, it's a marathon. These original first Jewish hearers, having now come to believe that the Messiah long promised had come, were facing intense opposition on account of believing in him and pressure to turn away. Faith in Jesus had brought about for some of them broken homes, material loss, social animosity. And what he says to them is, let us endure, let us run and keep on running the race that is set before us. And so we need to press on and he gives us perspective about how to do that. And I want you to hear that and consider it from Hebrews chapter 12. How do we keep going? In faith. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, and chastises every son whom he receives amen this is the word of god let's look to him together in prayer and our father be uh gracious and tender and instructive to us tonight Uh, speak to our hearts as your children even draw more into your family help us to know the blessing of belonging to you in jesus name i pray amen amen god calls us to finish the race that we have begun that he has set before us to keep on keeping on early in our marriage melinda and i competed with many others in a church sponsored missions conference uh 5k run walk pancake breakfast extravaganza right and um well she walked and I ran and she beat me true story I'm a sprinter I'd run out ahead of everybody suck wind start the slow crawl the racers just kept on coming relentless and uh at some point I, I hurt my feet, poor baby that I am. I remember at some point hopping onto the bumper of one of the guide you know trucks to just in the hope of finishing, right? But she just kept on walking. Now if you haven't seen Melinda Power Walk, you probably aren't thinking properly about things, but but she just kept on keeping on. What mattered to the participants is that they finished, and we both did. I've eaten my humble pie more than once on this. What's the question we always ask people who run a race, particularly at greater distance? What's the question we ask a a marathoner, did you finish? Did you finish? That's why I don't run marathons. Not sure I could do 26 point whatever miles it is. The writer here likens the Christian walk to a long distance race and he does more than that of course in the passage and we want to look at all these things he actually gives three pictures here of what the Christian life is like so that we can think about how do we need to keep going he speaks of the Christian life as running a marathon race verses one and two then he speaks of it like a fighter in a boxing ring or competition versus three and four and then he speaks of it as being raised in a disciplinarian's home verses five and six and I want to highlight those three things with you in the first place verses one and two the Christian life is like running a marathon race run he says with endurance the race set before you and it's not a sprint It's a long distance. It's a lifetime, perhaps 80 years or more for some of you. To finish, you've got to travel light, throw off some things and track Jesus. You've got to travel light, verse 1. Let us, he says, lay aside every weight or encumbrance. Let, Let nothing hinder you. And you know athletes... Uh, act this way and and they get more and more specialized in creating garments that weigh next to nothing and then wearing them publicly. Some of us wouldn't be seen in the things some of our athletes wear, But, but lighter shirts, lighter shorts, lighter shoes, just so that there's not an extra ounce to be carried through the finish line. You can't run in a winter coat wearing boots Carrying suitcases and expect to finish the race. What, we might ask, is the extra weight that you are carrying? And I simply don't think I can answer that question for you as well as you can answer that question for yourself. You have to do the work. What, what's holding you back from tracking with Jesus? Is there some particular hobby That has become an obsession that keeps you really from walking with Jesus. Or is there some love of some luxury uh, that has done so? Are there commitments in your life that ask too much of you so that you can't give your time to Jesus? Or are there unwise relationships in your life so that you don't give your heart to Jesus? Do you have mistaken ambitions Have you taken jobs, maybe, in kindness towards others who asked you to do something for them? But not the wisest decision if you're going to have time to follow Jesus. You need to ask these kinds of questions. What what keeps you from traveling light? But also, he says, don't get tripped up. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely or the sin which besets us or the besetting sin different translations take it different ways there is sin that easily trips you up entangles your feet he he may have in mind uh particular kinds of sins in your life that that uh, keep showing up as temptations for you uh the the same ones time and again he's uh, that always cause you to stumble, he may be saying, "You need to deal with those. I think more likely he means the more general sin of an unbelieving heart here looking looking back to Egypt with longing for the days of slavery instead of uh, the delights of freedom that we have in Jesus, grumbling against the Lord, complaining against the life that he's called us to, uh, his providence in our lives, not trusting him amidst trouble that comes to us for believing in him. These kinds of things. In, in other words, these two different categories speak to both legitimate and illegitimate things that keep us from walking with Jesus. Um, there's a pastor wonderful preacher named dick lucas who tells the story of two really effective christians in his community but it wasn't always that way in their experience one of them had been a backslider a notorious publicly known womanizer and when he came back finally to jesus he had to give that up it was clearly wrong and there was another man who was an upright charming, gifted man, well-respected. But when he came to the Lord and he decided to run for Jesus, he gave up an extremely expensive stamp collection. You say a stamp collection. Well, for him, it took too much time, too much money, too much mental energy and heart investment For him to both pursue that and walk with Jesus. Don't hear me wrong. It's not wrong to collect stamps necessarily. It could be a fine hobby. But it was too much baggage for him. Not wrong but unhelpful. You need to think both in terms of what sin causes you to stumble and what encumbers you in an unhelpful way though it's not sin in itself. And as we get older, we may find that there's more baggage than we're first aware of and we're less capable of carrying it all as we go. So he says, travel light, don't get tripped up, but track with Jesus. Fix your eyes, he says. Notice that language. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes in the wrong direction and that can be real trouble. Some of you have heard me talk about when I ran cross-country in high school. Now, see, the story with Melena happened later, after some months of marriage, and I'd packed on the, the, uh, the wife-honoring pounds. See, I ate her good food. But, but in high school, I ran cross-country. Cross uh, the, the younger, lighter me did, I should say. Um, I wasn't actually very good... Uh, but I had a best friend who was on the team and he wanted a partner in his own grade. He wanted me to run with him. I've always been a sprinter and not a distance guy. But we, uh, we had one guy, a little guy on the team. He was about five feet tall and 100 pounds, if I had to guess. He was a great runner, but one day he was tracking behind a group of other runners with his eyes firmly fixed on the feet in front of him when suddenly the group split left and split right and he ran smack into the middle of a tree. He never saw it coming because he wasn't looking for hazards. He was tracking other men without anticipating trouble. And that was fine until it wasn't. But the author here is saying there's one man you need to keep your eyes on. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you won't make that kind of mistake. He is a faithful guide, Jesus is, who ran the race ahead of you. Has finished the course. Knows every gopher hole. Every uplifted root on the path. Every loose rock. He completed this for us. On our behalf. Ahead of us. And he is able to help us. His whole life was one of trouble. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He endured the cross. And the writer says track with him. Look at him. Keep your eyes on him. For after all, as Jesus put it, no servant is above his master. If our master suffered, so will we. But his suffering, of course, was worse. His suffering was the cross where shame was heaped on him on behalf of others, where the wrath of God was poured out on him in the place of others. And he faced it. And he bore it and he held up under it in light of the joy that was set before him. And after his death and crucifixion and burial, he was raised on the third day. And the writer says he is now seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty. He is alive forevermore to help us. But it was in his experience, the cross before the crown, as others have said, suffering Before glory and no servant is above his master in this life our cross is not identical to his but we will share in the sorrows of this life some of you know what it is like to have been betrayed by a friend as Jesus was or um, to be abandoned by your inner circle in your hour of need as Jesus was To be misunderstood and mischaracterized by family members. To be lied about, to be mocked, to be insulted, to be dismissed for your faith. Even to be persecuted outright and to your face. Jesus has endured that and much more. But don't be surprised when in your race you endure such things too. Now, that's the first thing. And the second, the writer changes the picture here to that of a boxing ring or a wrestling ring. The, the Christian life, he says, is like a cage fight, verses 3 and 4. Uh, we get our English word antagonist from the Greek word uh, translated struggle here or striving against. In your, verse 4, in your struggle against Sin. Lord, you have an opponent who seeks to take you down and knock you out. Sin wants to destroy you. It is at war with you. Yet, unlike Jesus, you haven't, he says, died in the cause of defeating it. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood for the sake of fighting sin. Like Jesus did in shedding his own blood to defeat sin so that in your experience because of what Jesus did ahead of you in this fight you could be made alive in him you can then fight sin you can say no to sin you can say yes to righteousness but it will feel at times like agony you will want to give up you will face your own sins and temptations and failures and you will want to just chuck it and abandon the faith You'll be tempted to grow weary, verse 3, and lose heart. Particularly if you lose sight of Jesus and if you lose sight of what God is doing in you on account of Jesus. You know uh, John Newton who gave us amazing grace. I've mentioned this other hymn to you and someday I hope we'll sing it here. Um, the, The hymn I asked. The Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. All great prayer requests, right? Jesus, help me to grow. Grow me in faith. Grow me in love. Let me see your face. i mean, all great things. And then he goes on. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray." And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. Wait, why? Wait, what are you talking about? Despair? Agony? Yes, he says. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. I hoped, he says. I hoped... For perfection, immediately, instantaneously, right? No fight, no warfare, no conflict internally, uh, just immediate, victorious, instantaneous perfection and rest in Jesus. Now, and he goes on to say, but instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. That's war. He engaged me for a battle against the forces of evil without and within, even the evil one. And then Newton goes on to say, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed to intend to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thine all in me. I don't know if you call it all that. It's a wonderful text. We wanted instant success and God wanted us to learn to know the enemy within, our sinful heart, the enemy without, the world and the devil, and to learn to fight sin To learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to long for heavenly joy, to find Jesus, not this world, to be our all in all. To seek our satisfaction and our hopes and our desires, not here and now in the temporary, but there and then in the forever with Him. And the writer here in Hebrews is saying, you're not only in a marathon, you're in a cage fight the world and the flesh and the devil stand against you that will mean plenty of hardship plenty of it and christian life is like that it's like a cage fight but here's the kicker amidst all that opposition that threatens to wear you out what if you begin to think that god himself is against you What if you begin to say to yourself, all these difficulties, all these disappointments, all this defeat is from his hand because his hand is against me. Who can run a race or fight the good fight thinking God himself is their opponent? There's a third perspective you must have endure he says hardship as discipline the discipline of a loving heavenly father and you see that in verses 5 and 6 you see that here in hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son quoting proverbs do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In other words, the believer in Jesus can say, I am not experiencing trouble, sorrow, disappointment by accident. They are given by God for my good. What is God doing in all my challenges, all my struggles, my poverty, my relational sorrows, my emotional distresses, my health reversals? What do these things mean? The believer in Jesus can say they mean my heavenly father loves me. And he is treating me as his beloved. And in discipline, he is not out to hurt me but to help me some of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata who some 50 years ago now dove into the Chesapeake Bay misjudged the depth of the water struck her head and became a quadriplegic paralyzed from the neck down for 50 years she has lived in a wheelchair and she says it changed her And she says it changed her for good. Maybe you caught this in World Magazine recently. It says, she says, I I changed from a person who had confused the abundant Christian life with the American dream. I was a Christian and would, she says, marry a wonderful man who made $250,000 a year and have 2.5 children. It was me focused, she says. What can God do for me? And all that, she says, changed with the paralysis. And since then, if you know her life story, she's had a nearly 50-year ministry helping literally millions of people around the world who have suffered in various ways. When asked by the editor of World, what does she think her life actually would have been like had she not broken her back? She replied, I don't say this in front of hardly any audience, but in front of this, Patrick Henry College, I will. I believe what happened to me was an example of Hebrews chapter 12 discipline. I do. I've had Christians ask, how can you say that of God? That's awful for you to say he would discipline you. By making you a quadriplegic. No, 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 she says. Read Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines those he loves. Had I not broken my neck, I'd probably be on my second divorce, maxing out my husband's credit cards, planning my next ski vacation. I wouldn't be here extolling the glories of the gospel and the power of God to help a person smile. Not in spite of the problems, but because of them. Do you see what she said? I'm a daughter of the king. He meant well for me and he did well for me in what most of us would consider Life-ending. How can we endure hardship as discipline and benefit by it? Listen to the text. Don't stop listening, it says, verse 5. And don't take it lightly. And don't conclude you're unloved. Those three things to close. Don't stop listening. Verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, which these Jewish Christians would or ought to have been familiar with. Where it says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. In other words, he says to them, don't forget what he's already said to you. He has already spoken to you about your problems. And we need to be reminded of that, of course, time and again, because we're prone to forget they may have forgotten. This may not be a truth we want to be reminded of. It may not be a truth we particularly want to be a true truth. But he reminds them, don't forget this. The Lord disciplines you as sons, as sons and daughters, as his children. In fact, discipline, verse 6, is a mark of sonship so that in moments of anguish, when we are most prone to forget this, in in moments of darkness, when we are most prone to be blinded to the truth of the light, to feel that it isn't true, to feel that what's happening to me can't possibly be because God loves us, the writer says it is in that moment that you actually need to listen to the assuring and reassuring voice of the scripture itself, not the voice in your head telling you lies, but the voice of God's word already given that he disciplines those he loves precisely because he loves them. Remember Jesus facing temptation in the wilderness, a time of testing. The enemy came at him. It was at the, it was in the midst of 40 days of fasting, deprivation, isolation, All alone, attempts by the devil at deception for Jesus to believe the lies of the enemy, to turn away from the Lord's path that the Lord had placed him on. And do you remember what strengthened him to endure that? That right before he was led out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tested and tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was first baptized in the river Jordan and the dove descended from heaven. And the voice of the father spoke and said audibly, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. You are my son. You I love. Take those words with you, Jesus. As my spirit walks you into 40 days and nights of great trouble. For the enemy will say to you, if you are the son of God, then prove it. If you are the son of God, then put the father to the test and make him prove it. But Jesus heard the words of scripture. He heard the voice of his Father in heaven. You are my beloved. And he lived in light of it. He passed unlike us who often and time and again fail. He passed the test and he lived in light of the truth that he's the beloved of the Father. If necessary for your Savior to live in light of that truth. How much more necessary is it for you? Don't forget, he says, the words that address you as beloved children. Second, don't take lightly the Lord's discipline. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him keep in mind the significance of that disappointment he loves you it evidences you belong to him that he cares about you as a father his children Uh, Charles Spurgeon great Baptist preacher tells the story of a of a Mr. Mack who became a Baptist minister this is the 1700s He was in the army for a while, so he'd left home, he'd gone to the army, he'd been there for a while, and then he got released, and then he went into training for the ministry, and he'd been away in training, and then he finally got called to come back to his hometown in Glasgow, where his mother was, where he grew up. And so he had an occasion to pay his visit a mother, whom he had not seen for year after year after year, from really his his youth. So of course many changes had happened he decided to go see her he went to the door and he recognized her at once of course but she didn't recognize him she couldn't believe that this fine strapping good-looking young fellow in front of her was actually the youthful son she had said goodbye to so long ago so so what do you do well it happens that when he was a child his mother had accidentally wounded him with a knife she, she may have nicked him somehow. Maybe she dropped it or dropped something. Anyway, it, 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 it had wounded him on the wrist. And at the time, his mother, to comfort him about it, had said, Never mind me, Bonnie Bairn. Ye mirth will kin ye by that when ye are a man. Which translates, and we all need that. Never mind, my good child. Your mother will know you by that when you are a man. And so when his mother didn't recognize him, he pulled up his sleeve and said, Mither, mither, do ye ken that? And instantly they were in each other's arms, right? It was the mark, the wound which proved he was her son. Sometimes in your experience, it will be just those wounds. Never accidental. Never a mistake on the part of the father but from the hand of your beloved father, which actually prove that you are his beloved child because in love he disciplined you and he did not neglect you. So thirdly, don't conclude that you are unloved when life is a mess. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son Whom he receives. We're tempted to change those verbs. The Lord provides for those he loves. And he does. Uh, The Lord protects those he loves. And he does. The Lord loves those he loves. And he does. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Don't be crushed by that. God's discipline is in order to cure you. Uh, cure in this sense like the curing of a ham or the curing of leather or the curing of tobacco to, to undergo a process in order to make those things useful even more useful at the end than they were at the beginning most of us want to be useful but we don't want to be cured We want to be strong without exercise. We want to, as Alistair Begg puts it, we we want to get soft and tender eyes without ever having what makes us cry, weep, and breaks our hearts. We want to minister out of the fullness of our experience, but we don't want the fullness of experience ourselves that gives us the ability to minister. We want to press button A and press button B and get instant sanctification, instant spiritual maturity, instant answers to all our troubles, instant Christ-likeness. We don't want discipline, but discipline means we're loved. We say, if I was really God's children, I wouldn't experience this. And the Bible says, no, 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 because you are God's children, you are experiencing this. We say, if he really loved me, I wouldn't endure this. And the Bible says, it's because he loves you that he walks you through this. And so if we're going to live as children in our father's house, then we will experience Discipline. Don't let hardship convince you you are unloved. You are his beloved. So listen to his word. Don't take it lightly and know that you are loved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when everything in us wants to flee or escape or drug or suppress hide from hardship grant rather that we would lean on you look to you and know that we are loved by you and so make us more like jesus in every way in his name i pray Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.